Walter, welcome to your very own podcast. I know you don't have much experience with public speaking or interviews and you tend to shy away from the spotlight, but how does it feel? You're about to be pod famous. It's uh, it's a very strange experience. I'm not really an expert on podcasts, so this is uh, I'm going to be learning as I go, I guess. Yeah, well, that checks out with what I know about you. Welcome to What Really Matters, the U.S. news podcast brought to you by Tablet and the Hudson Institute. Every episode, we help you understand the news, decide what news matters and what doesn't, and help you enjoy following the story of America and the world more than you do now. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles, California. I'm here as I will be every episode with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet news writer, Global View columnist, The Wall Street Journal, and distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute. And uh, we have known each other now for, what, 10 or 11 years. You actually gave me my first gig out of college. I was your B-minus, C-plus research assistant on The Ark of a Covenant, your book about the U.S.-Israel relationship that I'm sure we'll be returning to throughout this podcast. I was also one of your staffers on the original Via Media blog. Do you ever think you'd be back to where you were 10 years ago, being peppered with questions from me about like the meaning of life and the arc of history and all that. Well, you know, Jeremy, I've always hoped that, you know, I would find promising young people and give them a start. And then the time would come, you know, as I got older, that they would like find funding for me and give me really easy jobs. And instead, what I've got is, uh, you know, you're coming back and asking me all these questions on a podcast and creating more work. I don't really think you've absorbed the kinds of things I was trying to mentor you to do yet. But hope lives eternal. What an ambivalent endorsement that is. Well, mercifully, this uh, podcast won't involve me asking, you know, what I should do with my life or whether I should break up with my girlfriend. Our first segment is called News or Faux News. The idea is to help listeners distinguish between signal and noise, which headlines are real and which are BS. So I'm going to toss out three stories in the news cycle, and Walter, you separate the wheat from the chaff. You tell us whether it's news or faux news. Our first story, Donald Trump faces federal criminal charges related to his post-presidency handling of classified documents. Nevertheless, Trump continues to beat the GOP primary field in nationwide and statewide polls, where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is currently sinking like a stone. News or faux news? If there's anybody out there in podcast land who was surprised by any of these developments, please write in and give us your name, email, and your bank transfer details because we have a bridge that we would like to sell you. Okay, I'll take that as faux news. Story number two. At two recent meetings of OPEC+, Plus, Saudi Arabia and Russia failed to come to an agreement about oil production. The Saudis are reducing output to prop up failing prices, while Russia will accept lower prices in order to continue selling more oil. New York Times reports this apparent rift could actually benefit the Biden administration. News or faux news? Well, that, you know, there's a lot of faux news and a lot of real news in there, but uh, what, your, what readers should be paying attention here to is a couple of things. One is 
countries act in accordance with their interests. The Saudis' interest is not in squeezing out as much money as they can week to week from the oil market because they've got a lot of oil and hope to be selling it for a long time. Russia, on the other hand, the house is on fire. They got a war to win. They want every penny they can get now. And so amazingly, their interests are different. And astonishingly, this leads to different policies at OPEC+. I mean, truly, you know, the entire world of political science will be knocked on its heels uh, if this word ever leaks out. Um, will it help the Biden administration? Um, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that, you know, the Biden administration kind of started by, by telling the world that uh, MBS was a pariah, was a horrible human being, and let me get it straight, as an American newspaper columnist, I disapprove of foreign countries killing American newspaper columnists um, and think it's a terrible precedent, a bad idea. Uh, but at the same time, I think the Biden administration got itself up on a moral high horse and was making all kinds of sort of making all kinds of cheap moral comments about how virtuous they were and how nasty the, the Saudis were, only to wake up in the middle of, the, of their term and realize, oh, wait a minute, Saudi Arabia is an important country which has, you know, has a number of elements of the amount of money that it has, its diplomatic ability, and of course its influence on world oil price, and we need it. So Secretary Blinken, we had the infamous fist bump of President Biden with MBS. And now that clearly wasn't enough. And uh, Secretary of State went to Saudi Arabia to try again to smooth waters. So the Biden administration is trying to clean up a mess that it made. And I think we, we need to give them points, not for making the mess in the beginning, but realizing that they screwed up they screwed up an important relationship for the United States. That screw-up had real-world consequences, and it's time to fix it. Third and final story. During the first three months of 2023, U.S. office vacancies topped 20% for the first time in decades, and office attendance in the 10 largest business districts in the United States is still below 50% of its pre-COVID level. News or faux news? That's one of the most important stories, I think, of the week, the year, possibly the decade. Um, because the truth is that, that COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, revealed a truth that we didn't know, but is actually important, which is we don't need the nine to five commute. We don't need to have tens of millions of Americans in, you know, swearing and cursing in traffic jams that, that spew carbon into the atmosphere, suck hours and hours and hours out of people's lives, impose huge infrastructure costs on it. It turns out none of that do we need anymore because uh, half the work in the United States can actually be done by people sitting peacefully at home. And that was, that was an example of how Technology has changed the world in a way that nobody admitted or un nobody predicted, nobody understood, nobody noticed. 
For years, we've been hearing about the stagnation. There's no productivity increase. We're making all these investments in technology. What's happening? What's happening is we've totally changed the way work works. Right Now, what is really interesting is that Americans all over the country don't see the point of long commutes, long expensive commutes. They don't see the point of being away from their families for unnecessary hours. They don't actually really believe that all of those conversations by the water cooler are magical conversations that spark new ideas. And while they don't really love Zoom meetings, they feel that actually you can pretty much get done what you need to do uh, in Zoom and it's better than driving three hours across the city. And the implications of this are potentially immense. First of all, we're seeing corporate management really wanting to get those chicks back under its wings. And every you know, senior management, a lot of corporations are starting to threaten and penalize people to try to whip them back into the office. My own sense is that's probably not the best way to increase worker productivity or improve morale. What is it they say? The beatings will continue until morale improves. Um, and so we're seeing some fight back there. But this is, not, this is bigger than a story about workers and commutes. It's a story about cities. If those vacancy rates stay where they are, uh, we're going to see a financial crisis in cities. We're seeing it in San Francisco to some degree already. New York, Los Angeles, a lot of cities, uh, their tax bases are not going to make sense anymore because commercial real estate that's half empty is not worth as much as corporate real estate that is full and that people are leasing for new offices. So we're going to see a fiscal crisis. My guess is we're going to start seeing a lot of corporate and government power trying to force a return to work, to force people to get back into, you know, back into the mold, back, back into, you know, start getting back into the matrix so that um, uh, we can, you know, so that the tax numbers add up for the cities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a real struggle. But the industrial age city, the sort of center city with rings of suburbs radiating out from it, no longer makes economic sense. And that reality is going to be an important background piece of our lives for years to come as we sort out the debris of this explosion. Our next segment is called The Learning Curve. We all know the saying about history repeating itself, so it helps to stop and take a look at some really big mistakes from the past. So Walter, each episode will draw on a historical blunder with relevant lessons for us today. Now, as we think about the US today and its competition with China in AI, EVs, semiconductors, all of that, it makes me think of something you've mentioned before about the technological and regulatory blunders made by France throughout the 19th century and its long struggle with Britain for global hegemony. The French invested huge amounts of resources in like the Napoleonic semaphore only to completely miss the advent of the electronic telegraph. 
decades of subsidies and such it took to prop up the government-controlled telephone industry and so forth. So tell us about the technological and regulatory blunders of 19th century France and what Americans can learn from that today. Boy, it's one of those subjects that everybody just loves to talk about. It is a 19th century French industrial policy. Mm -mm. Yeah, it'll be a repetition for most of our listeners, but... Uh, well, you know, I started thinking about this um, years ago when, uh, this must be, what, 30 years ago, you'd go to France and they had this wonderful thing called the Minitel. There would, you know, on uh, like uh, the telephones in uh, hotels and increasingly in private homes and businesses, there'd be this little screen and you could get information on it about store openings and things like this. And it was, it was an emblem of French technological superiority and modernity. And I used to actually have to listen to an awful lot of bragging about how far ahead of the rest of the world the French were with the Minitel. And then in, along comes the Internet. And suddenly this little black and white device just doesn't hold a candle to what's on the Internet. And for a while, the French sort of half-heartedly tried to keep the Minitel going, but in the end, it has completely collapsed. If you own any phones that have those little screens on them, you can probably sell them as museum pieces, although you would be smarter to keep hold on to them because they'll be worth more in 50 years. But the Minitel, alas, is no more, and that hideous Anglo-American device, the Internet, has taken it over and typically its first language is English, much to the chagrin of all right-thinking people. So, uh, and what is interesting about that is that this was not, um, it's not the first time that happened to the French. Uh, the French developed, uh, you spoke of the Napoleonic semaphore. This was actually an incredibly complicated signaling device that was easily the most um, advanced thing in the world in its time. You know, we sort of go back, people who saw the Lord of the Rings saw the bonfires being lit on the mountaintops to warn of the attack, right? And that's, um, that's the oldest form of distance communication that human beings have, and it's sort of a one-bit thing. It's on or off. It can communicate one piece of information, but it does it rapidly over great distances. Well, the French improved on that, and they had these signaling devices that could kind of send out messages, could spell out words or indicate things, and they were set up all over the Napoleonic Empire, allowing Napoleon and his counselors to actually have much better real-time information. And, but it was very expensive to keep these things, um, uh, excuse me, it's very expensive to keep these things uh, operational. And they really, you know, they, they could only deliver at the end a fairly, a finite set of messages, a little bit like the Minitel. And so what happens is Samuel Morse comes along with the telegraph, which can transmit anything um, and do it faster using Morse code and all of this. And so all of that just is, is eclipsed. Now, why is that interesting? Uh, many of the, re uh, the listeners are probably saying, well, it's not very interesting, frankly. Uh, 
But why is it interesting? It sort of points to what's wrong, what can go wrong with industrial policy, where you get some really smart people looking at the technology that exists at that moment and thinking about, okay, what's the cleverest thing we can do with this technology? And now let's put a lot of government resources behind it so that even if it's not fully economic, this thing that we're trying to do, it can really achieve a kind of scale of operation and become useful. And that's a, it's a very natural thing to do. I suppose the closest American equivalent we have to it in some ways is ethanol, uh, which was originally done as a way to reduce our oil dependency following the uh, Arab oil embargo and the OPEC price rises and has now been turned into a not very effective green instrument, but as it remains an extremely effective instrument for putting money into the hands of Iowa farmers, something that matters dramatically in American politics every four years. So, um, so industrial policy always has a constituency. Sometimes it works, but the French examples, I think, point, point us to the dangers of making really complex bets based on a kind of status quo perception of what the technological frontier is. Okay, well, that's an excellent segue into our final segment, The Big Conversation. The Big Conversation, this one on the recent tablet essay called You Are Not Destined to Live in Quiet Times, and I quote from that essay. The sense is widespread today among elites as well as among the public at large that the dogs of technological and economic change have slipped the leash, that things are happening to us faster than we can understand, much less control. As the pace of change surges at an ever-increasing rate, the prospect of a fundamental change in the conditions of human existence looms larger from year to year. Apocalypse used to be a religious, even a mythological concept, but in our time, it is becoming a political possibility. Walter, you'll be surprised to learn that's actually not Harold Camping. That is you in the pages of Tablet, and you seem to be saying that after thousands of years, we are now, at last, living in the shadow of a singularity. Tell us what you mean. Okay, well, um, probably a lot of our listeners have heard that term singularity before. It's pretty common in Silic on Silicon Valley uh, websites and so on, and it, it really talks about a change in the human condition that is so radical and profound that there's a sort of a real discontinuity between before and after. So an example would be, artificial intelligence becomes self-aware and takes over and human beings become the pets of our computers. Or perhaps in a more benign scenario, we get the ability to upload our consciousness into the cloud and then download it into perfectly cloned 18-year-old blank bodies so that we achieve human you know, immortality and eternal youth. Um, or we can think of many other scenarios, and again, some are quite exciting and, and thrilling that 
Technological progress eliminates poverty and disease, and some are extremely depressing, like runaway climate change makes the earth uninhabitable or nuclear war wipes us out. But what I've just given you is a whole variety of scenarios, none of which, well, some are more plausible than others, but none of which are really totally implausible. And the chances that something on that dramatic scale, we don't know which, are likely, has become kind of the background noise of our lives. That is something new in the human condition. That in, in former times, when people did talk about the end of the world, this was something that the gods or God would, would do. You know, the, the wool, the giants would burn Valhalla. Um, you know, the earth would return to its fire pit origins or whatever. Um, but it was nothing that human, be, human activity could do very much about. But now we're all living with the idea that, that the things that we do or not do, or the politicians that we elect or not elect, the laws we pass or don't pass, could make the difference between human extinction and human flourishing. And when that happens, the nature of politics changes. In a sense, politics becomes religion. Because politics is not about, well, if you raise the sales tax 2%, that's going to help some people and hurt others. And, you know, we're going to have a discussion. Maybe we'll compromise on 1%, something like that. Uh, that's, not diff that's not the same as politics when you're cooking the planet or you're going to bring on thermonuclear war. Um, and so people begin to look at political movements, political questions, political candidates uh, in, in these sort of absolutist ways. I think you can see that infecting politics, not just in the United States. This is a global phenomenon. It also begins, we saw this in the Cold War, this, you know, really since 1945 with nuclear weapons, we've had this possibility. It's just the possibility sort of taken on new forms and, and really new probabilities in the, in the years since 1945. But international competition, uh, you know, will the U.S.-China confrontation lead to nuclear war that destroys the human race? Or will it block progress on climate change so that climate change goes un unforestalled and that destroys the human race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're, in, we're embroiled in a variety of scenarios in which both permanent success and human flourishing and the destruction of us and everything we hold dear are daily up for grabs in the political arena. It's kind of an exhausting world to live in. Well, let's just take one step back from that. I mean, you know, one of the most influential strains of thought among people like uh, Peter Thiel, Robert Gordon, some others over the last 10 to 20 years has been the thesis of technological stagnation 
that contrary to the popular impression of breakneck technological progress in the age of computing and internet technology, that actually the most remarkable fact about the United States since the 1970s is the decelerating rate of technological and economic change. So they'd point to you know, stagnation in infrastructure, healthcare, education, maybe slowdowns in productivity growth, median wages and living standards stagnating and, and so forth. But Walter, you didn't have much time for this thesis of technological stagnation even before the more recent advent of things like mRNA vaccines, large language models, uh, before we all started hearing more about artificial general intelligence and you know AI doomerism and extinction. Uh, tell us why this theory has never made much sense to you. You know, I've been around long enough to... Uh to experience a lot of change, and believe me, it hasn't slowed down a bit. Maybe because a lot of my work is in journalism, and uh, my entire career has felt like I've, I'm, uh, you know, like uh, little Eliza in Uncle Tom's Cabin trying to jump across the Ohio River on, you know, from one broken ice flow to another, to with the bloodhounds at my back to try to uh, st stay going because. You know, the business models that worked for journalism not so long ago don't work. And as I'm sure you know from your work at Tablet, sort of, you know, every few months the landscape totally changes, usually in ways that make it more challenging. And the technological change in the way that we research and write, through whether it's the Internet, even word processing, all of this, the way we communicate. When I started writing, I would dictate my articles, overseas articles. I go like the one phone line in Bulgaria available to the public for international phone calls and call the LA Times 24-7 dictation desk and read my copy into to this phone line. Okay, everything about that has changed including the LA Times seems to be, I guess it just laid off another 74 people. So my life has been one of just constant upheaval and change. Um, and and that's a, that I'm sure that, that has something to do with how I see things. But also, as, as I said earlier, with this pan, in the pandemic, where we suddenly realized we don't need to go to work in the morning. At least about half of us really don't. And the only reason for going is if somebody like Elon Musk wants to make us go. Uh, and then we're not going to get the work done. We're going because our corporate overlords will fire us if we don't. All right? That's a very different, that's a revolutionary change in the workplace, in the economy. It will have immense implications for family life, etc., etc. Uh, so the change is continuing. But I think also I've kept my eye on this prospect of human extermination. As you may recall from uh, that book, The Ark of a Covenant, I talk about when I was 10 years old. Uh, that was during the Cuba Missile Crisis of 1962. I'm talking there about how um, that fall, my friends and I at uh, Glenwood Elementary School would sit around arguing at recess about whether our town was going to be wiped out in the first wave of Soviet nuclear blasts or whether we'd actually be the unlucky survivors to be slowly poisoned by radiation and killed by cannibalistic mutants. 
Um, and it was definitely considered like the benign uh, scenario if you went out in a flash early on. Um, all right, that's, you know, by historical standards, that's not necessarily normal 10-year-old thinking. But what we saw was all during the Cold War, that prospect of U.S.-Soviet nuclear war, even accidental, much less on purpose, you know, where, they, where, where you misinterpret a flock of geese uh, on your radar as a Soviet attack, and so you, you press the button and oops. Um, you know, these things were, were always on your mind. Then, you know, end of the Soviet Union, ah, that's over, we thought. But climate change starts to pop. The threats to human survival keep proliferating. And that keeps driving all kinds of political and cultural change. So I, I've kept my eye on that. And that has made me skeptical about ideas that somehow everything is calming down after a huge burst of innovation and change. Well, on that note of... Uh potential thermonuclear extinction. Let's go to our final question, Walter, uh, perhaps a bit lighter, which is going to be the tip of the week. And this week it's going to be a book. So Walter, what book have you recently read that you would recommend to our listeners? And don't say like Thucydides or Macaulay or something like, I mean, you can get a little weird and edgy here. I'm getting a little weird and edgy here. Well, I, you know, I don't know if this is weird or edgy, but uh, there's a guy named Walter Anderson who's an emeritus professor, I think at Johns Hopkins, SAIS, something, who's written, who's almost alone in the United States, spent a lot of time studying the RSS. RSS, you may say. What on earth is that? Um, the RSS is a, is a civil society Hindu nationalist group in India that has been responsible more than anything else for the rise of, of this kind of Hindu nationalist Indian political movement, which Prime Minister Modi is now, you know, the head of and in office because of. And Walter Anderson's book, The RSS, is a very... I think, important study um, that introduces people who don't know very much about Indian politics to this obscure but extremely powerful organization uh, that, that I think is becoming necessary for anybody who wants to understand world politics to, under, to, to get a grip on. As we talk, Jeremy, um, Washington is getting ready for Modi's visit uh, I interviewed Kurt Campbell last uh, earlier this week at the uh, at Hudson Institute, where Kurt said that in the 21st century, the U.S.-India relationship will be the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And Kurt, as listeners may know, is the National Security Council point person for Indo-Pacific strategy in the Biden administration. And, and one of the most important players in the world of American foreign policy. So India, the relations with India, the nature of Indian politics, uh, what Hindutva ideology says and doesn't say, how there are various strains of it, how there are different groups with different perspectives, how the movement works, what it thinks, 
These are the kinds of things that anybody who wants to follow American foreign policy or world events is going to need to understand. So RSS by Walter Anderson, I think, would be a a great thing for people to take a look at. We'll leave a link to Walter's book tip of the week in the show notes, as well as a link to his Via Media series of essays at Tablet. Otherwise, there you have it, the first episode of What Really Matters in the Books. Thank you to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.